0: When he says it's a good guy, it's probably a lie. It's happily ever slasher. The cabin in the woods has a four-star rating, but the murder scene will be devastating. He's coming on too strong, there might be something wrong. It's happily ever slasher, the podcast.
1: Hey guys, I'm Tara. And I'm Amanda, and this is Happily Ever Slasher, the podcast about two movies with one thing in common.
0: Each week, we're watching one romantic comedy and one horror movie to find out just how much these two genres have in common. So what movies are we talking about this week? This week, we're talking about the 2009 horror movie, Drag Me to Hell, and the 2010 rom-com, When in Rome.
1: And the theme this week is don't take shit that doesn't belong to you, whether it's coins from a fountain or an old lady's house. What
0: is the most devious thing you've ever stolen? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's just get right into it. (laughs) Or was it cursed? (laughs) Yeah, knock on wood. Um, Let me think for a second. I haven't stolen that many things in my life when I was, that's really hard. What was, what is yours? And I'll think on it.
0: I also haven't stolen a ton of shit in my life. I went through a phase in college where I would take glasses, uh, from bars all the time. And one time I just took a straight up like decanter. That was this big, um, <laughs> for the, <How> big, <laughs> <laughs> this big, <laughs> <That> big. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. And but that, it, it wasn't cursed. I don't think. And it wasn't that bad. One time I stole, um, there was a guy my freshman year who wasn't that nice, and he would always brag about how much money his family had. And he wore Crocs all the time. And I stole his Crocs and I hid them. And I didn't feel bad because I was like, "Well, if you have so much money, get real shoes." Because <laughs> not a nurse for any like position that justifies Crocs.
1: <laughs> That's a lesson. That's a lesson we can all learn from.
0: Because
1: I'm a petty bitch. <laughs> I know. I feel like I haven't stolen much. Let me think. Um, when I was a teenager, when I like first started like raiding my parents like liquor cabinets and stuff for like whatever I could find, my friend and I stole like, I that. <laughs> that's not what I stole. I mean, I they, they were my parents. I borrowed that from them. <laughs> but we stole um some like mixer stuff from the grocery store. Oh. <laughs> and it was like, whiskey sour mix, and we mixed it with, like, not whiskey, so we made, like, this disgusting, like, soury, like, vodka drink that was absolutely gross, so I got what was coming to me, I feel. (laughs) (laughs) I just realized you helped
0: me steal a Mother's Day present once.
1: Oh, my God, that's true.
0: (laughs) She knows it was stolen. It's fine if she listens.
1: Well, she listens,
0: so now she does. (laughs) I told her immediately when I gave it. I can't lie. But yeah, my mom's obsessed with what she calls her special cocktail which is really just like a white wine spritzer with a little bit of (laughs) Saint-Germain. And we went to a French restaurant that had glasses with the markers for white wine and spritzer and Saint-Germain. And Amanda covered me while I stole it for her from others.
1: So I'm an accomplice.
0: (laughs) Yeah, don't think it's been cursed, but we'll see.
1: (laughs) I'm very superstitious, so I am very afraid of cursed objects. And I don't one time I saw... I think it was on BuzzFeed. There was, like, a a staff writer at BuzzFeed that just buys cursed objects off eBay. And, like, that is my nightmare job. I would have to quit immediately if they said, would you like to work for BuzzFeed? And here's what you'd have to do. I'd be like, nope, don't fuck with that.
0: (laughs) Do you think they, like, hired her for that, though? Or were they like, so what's your quirky thing going to be? And she's like, well, actually, this is what I'd like to do with my life. Will you pay me for it? Because I feel like that's how BuzzFeed works. (laughs)
1: I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt it honestly but it's I can't even watch the videos where she does it because I'm afraid like I'll get like cursed by that so like (laughs) do you think you've ever come
0: across something that was like legitimately cursed
1: I so this this is like speaks to my superstition when I was like a kid I used to read you might be a little younger but have you ever read like the sweet valley high books or heard of them I've heard of them. I have not read them. They were big when I was, like, a teenager or a middle schooler. I don't know. There was one about a cursed object, and it was this book where, like, they find this, like, ring, and it was super scary, and it was, like, this, like, cursed ring. And I literally had to throw the book away, and then I was at the beach, and I found, like, a piece of jewelry. Like, it wasn't, like, a nice piece of jewelry, but I freaked out, and I had to, like, throw it away immediately, and, like, I was terrified. Oh, man. That's the closest I've come. (laughs) I might have
0: gotten cursed. I basically took away from that was that J.K. Rowling uh, stole from the Sweet Valley series. (laughs) And maybe also
1: from your life. (laughs) (laughs) From my life, personally. Have you what is the closest you've come?
0: I don't think I've ever been near anything that was legitimately cursed, but I don't want to say that either because I feel like then like supernatural forces will be like, well now we'll show you. Like you didn't think we were real. Um but I can't think of anything that I thought was cursed other than like some really bad art I did when I was in school. But that's different.
1: <laughs> I guess we can't even go. Like, I get really freaked out by the mu- the mummy rooms at museums
0: because oh, I, I
1: feel it. like fucking with like Egyptian mummies and stuff is like not a good idea. Let them rest in peace. I don't want to fuck with that. We
0: should do the mummy at some point. Which version? <laughs> I don't. I prefer the Boris Karloff, but I'm open to any of them, including the Tom Cruise. <laughs> I'm I was gonna go Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Maybe instead of doing, like, a romantic comedy and a horror movie, we'll just do all the three different versions of The Mummy. <laughs> That's a good idea.
1: We should do that around
0: Halloween. Yeah. Oh, we could do each week. We'll be a different, like, classic monster, like, all different tropes of movies that all lean on the same thing.
1: Ooh. Stay tuned, audience. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Wait, speaking of movies, because I guess that's what we came here for.
1: Had you seen these movies before? So I had seen When in Rome once when it came out. It was, like, very, like, not memorable for me. Um, I love Kristen Bell, and I love Josh Duhamel, but, like, I didn't really have a strong memory of the movie. And I'd never seen Drag Me to Hell before watching it for the podcast, actually. I love Drag Me to Hell so much. Although I was, like, I have to say...
0: I Okay, so I had seen Drag Me to Hell before, and I was super excited for you to watch it. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was, like, so good, and I didn't understand why it didn't have, like, more press around it. And then re-watching it, I was kind of like, uh, <laughs> it's weirdly problematic. Like, I don't know if it plays in all the same ways. I still love it, I think, because I love Sam Raimi and his, like, brand of horror a lot, but um, yeah, it just, it didn't quite hit the same.
1: Yeah, I, so I'd never seen it, and I had, like, after watching it, I, like, read a bunch of reviews on it, and every one of the reviews was, like, this is amazing, it's one of the best horror movies, and I just, I don't know if it's, like, just me being in quarantine for all these days or what, but I just, like, wasn't that impacted by it, like, I didn't find it that scary, which I don't know. Maybe I've just become desensitized, like sitting in my apartment for 45 days. Like (laughs) the the real world is
0: scarier than it now.
1: (laughs) Right. Like there's all these like jump scares and like I barely twitched, which is very I'm usually someone who when I see a good jump scare, like it follows when the dad is on the roof, I freak the fuck out. But like these jump scares, I just like I barely moved. I mean, the scariest part of the whole movie for me was when the old lady was, like, coughing up a lung on the bank desk. I'm like, that is not
0: sanitary. (laughs) Oh, oh my God, yeah. I remember being really scared the first time I watched it. And, I don't know, I probably because I've seen it before. It didn't really hit me that hard this time. I had never seen One in Rome before. I think I had seen, like, a few minutes of it on TV one day when I was, like... Sick from school, or not sick, maybe sick from school, home from school, while <laughs> sick. And I thought it was terrible and didn't want to watch it any more than like 10 minutes. Yet I still think it's terrible. <laughs> it's not good. <laughs> it's <laughs>
1: really, not good, really. really
0: bad. I think it's the worst movie we've watched so far. There's like not even anything enjoyably bad about it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I mean, th- I think there's movies we watch that I have bigger issues with, but this was, like, just the least enjoyable. Yeah. I didn't even get, like, there was no giggles for me anywhere. I think I laughed, and I, I'll talk about it in my summary, like, the three parts that I actually, like, physically made laughing sounds. <laughs> <laughs> and they're super corny, and, like, I think it's just more, like, situational than, like, how they... Played in the movie. But yeah, why don't we get into it then? <laughs> Do it. When in Rome is a 2010 rom com starring Kristen Bell and Josh Duhamel. It was directed by Mark Steven Johnson, who wrote and directed a bunch of movies, including the 2003 Dumpster Fire, the Ben Affleck fronted Daredevil movie, which is <laughs> terrible. <laughs> is he still allowed to make movies after those two? Oh, I know, right? I mean, and I would say he's supposed to pay his dues, but then he made this, so <laughs> he has yet to pay us back for the for the, the next one. Better be a feminist masterpiece,
0: or or he's
1: out, <laughs> right? I guess he also divorced. He divorced his wife of twenty five years the year before this movie was released. So <laughs> that explains a lot. <laughs> I'm not saying there's a correlation, but. <laughs> Maybe she saw an early cut and she was like, I'm out.
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that theory.
1: It is the story of an all-business New York Museum curator named Beth, who travels to Rome for his sister's wedding and falls for ex-football player Nick, played by Josh Duhamel. And when she sees him kissing someone else, she gets drunk, jumps in a fountain and steals a bunch of coins. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah, who hasn't? She's then aggressively pursued by the owners of said coins, including Nick. And the whole point of this movie is, like, does he love her for her? Is she is he just under a spell? And lucky for all of us, they wrap this up in 90 minutes. <laughs>
0: woo, woo! We had two appropriately linked movies this week.
1: So. Yeah, this week, watched them both in, like, three hours. That's, like, the length of, like, one. <laughs> like, one rosemary's baby. <laughs> yeah. All right. Great job, you guys. That's me in the headset. A few days know. ago, I was a very happy New Yorker until one night I ran into my ex. I met someone, and we're getting engaged. <gasps> Son of a... So I'm in the most magical city on earth for my sister's wedding, and that's where I met him. Come on, it's vase-breaking time. The maid of honor shatters a vase, and it symbolizes happiness for the bride and groom. So smash it hard. They do that for good luck. I'm Nick, by the way. Beth. Uh, That's my bad. When it comes to love, I've never had too much luck. But this is what the Romans call the Fontana de Amore. If you throw in a coin, you find love. So maybe if I take a few, like you,
0: and you, and you, some of the magic will rub off on me. What were you doing in the Fontana de Amore? Picking up coins. Seth, we got a problem. If you take someone's coin from the fountain, they will fall in love with you. That is ridiculous. Have any men come on to you since the wedding? bad You're intimidated because I'm a model. Whoa. You're welcome. Whoa, what are you going? Hey, can someone call the vet? Because these puppies are sick.
1: So the movie opens in New York City. Classic rom-com move. We meet Kristen Bell's Beth, who's a curator at the Guggenheim. She's at a party. Um, we meet her quirky co-worker, played by Kate McCucci who I love.
0: All my notes for this movie are just like, the Guggenheim deserved better than this. Kate McCucci deserved better than this. Like, every time someone new was introduced, I was like, they deserve so
1: much better. The Trevi Fountain deserved better than this.
0: That is a legit
1: note I wrote down Rome deserved better than this. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast deserved better than this. (laughs) So we meet these people at this party. We also see her ex boyfriend who just comes to tell her all the things he didn't like about her.
0: This movie just, like, immediately goes off the defense with, like, everyone is so mean to her. She's so victimized for, like, no reason. And it's so unrealistic in that he just, like, shows up to her event to be like, hey, bish, got engaged. Oh, did you think I was talking about you? Like,
1: who does that shit? Yeah. Also, like, listing all the things he doesn't like about her, including her ambition because she, like, quote, works too hard. And then he just goes on to say, it's okay, because he loves all those things now in his new girlfriend or fiancé. Yeah. And I feel like they try it. Like, Kristen Bell is kind of, like, known for this, like, you know, downtrodden, like, kind of character. Then they they go for the laughs at her expense. And I feel like she's, like, typically in comedies playing that kind of role. But, yeah, I mean, it's a lot so, to pile onto this, Beth gets a call from her like free spirit sister, Joan, who's getting married in two weeks to an Italian guy she met on a flight. <laughs> Live in the dream that joke. She's a flight attendant, right? I think some, I think they mentioned that at some point, so she wasn't just like on a plane. shes her chances of meeting someone on a flight are like exponentially more than like my chances, especially now, because we can't go anywhere.
0: Oh yeah, <laughs> I don't think any of us are meeting anyone on a flight <laughs> anytime soon. No plane days
1: for us. Beth's also in charge of curating a big exhibit at the mm-hmm. museum, and she is like looking after her boss, who's played by Angelica Houston, who also deserved better than
0: this. Yep. <laughs> She's one of my favorites, and
1: I was just like Angelica Houston. No, why are you here? She was very out of place. Like, there's a lot of names in this movie. Like Danny DeVito is in this, but I didn't really like. He he also deserved better than this. But Angelica Houston is the one where I saw her, and I was like, wait a minute, like record scratch. (laughs) What is she doing
0: here? I don't
1: don't think she needs
0: the money or the publicity. She can't have thought the script was good. I just don't understand.
1: Maybe she was just like, I have some time to kill. Actually, she didn't even get to go to Rome, so she didn't do it for, like, the Rome trip. (laughs)
0: Uh, She's another one who her character is, like, unbelievably mean. Where I'm like, we haven't even set up a precedent for why you wouldn't like this character. You're just such a bully.
1: (laughs) Yeah, she's just portrayed as, like, that hard-ass boss. And it's like, it's her sister's wedding. Relax. It's 48 hours. It's not... The end of the world. It's not Beth's fault, her sister's a mess. <laughs> right. She has to go. She probably would love to say no, I can't make it. <laughs> so she does go and the wedding takes place in front of this like generic fountain that's supposed to be like the Trevi fountain, but it's called the Fountain of Love, because they didn't get they didn't get the chance to use the Trevi Fountain. They got the Guggenheim. But-
0: <laughs> understands who was... uh, Maybe they spent all their money on the Guggenheim.
1: Yeah, the Chubby Fountain read the script and was like, nah, (laughs) now we're good. Classy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they actually just brought the fountain in. That, like, fountain isn't really in in Rome. It's just, like, a fake fountain they put there, which you could tell because it's, like, tiny and not that pretty.
0: I actually couldn't tell because I'm an idiot, and that makes me feel so much better about the whole thing. Like, oh, they didn't actually, like... To face some amazing uh, Roman architecture for this dumbass movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's one thing they did right. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so she goes to this wedding. She's all pissed off because she doesn't have a cell signal. We meet her parents who are divorced. Her mom is, like, a bit bitter, has a line, like, when she's talking to Nick, like, he looks nice, but so did your father. <laughs> yeah. Classic bitter divorced woman. She's, uh, <laughs> like, the director's wife. What a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the dad is played by Don Johnson, and he's, like, the free-spirited, like, player, loves being in love. He has, like, a really awkward conversation with, with- Beth I'm like I don't know maybe this isn't awkward so like I don't know if like people talk to their dads like this I just never did about like um when he has the line like you won't let yourself fall in love and I can't stop and I'm like that's weird to me I don't know maybe I'm just like I come from an uptight family but like that's not like a conversation I've ever had
0: I I think it was like less that they were talking about relationships on that level and more that like they're like making fun of they're like painting him as like this playboy who keeps dating like increasingly younger like beach volleyball players and then they're also kind of like painting him as the good guy like good for him keeps putting himself out there what a hopeless romantic so cool as opposed to the mom i'm just like no he's like a creepy pervert
1: (laughs) yeah i feel like we need to find a balance between like the like I don't know, in Juneau last week when J.K. Simmons is talking about how you have to find someone where the sun shines out of your ass and, like, it can last forever. And then Don Johnson's like, you never know what's going to happen and, like, just keep on keeping on. I feel like we need, like, a middle ground dad that's just, like... Find someone you like. (laughs) Do your best. (laughs) Do your best. We need Stanley Tucci back.
0: (laughs) Always. Oh, man. He's been um, putting out some great quarantine content, and I'm I'm a little mad though. The rest of the internet is now like trying to get with my boyfriend. Oh, yeah. you, you said it first. Yeah, Stanley Tucci, he's a daddy.
1: <laughs> now you have to share him. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, So at the wedding, we meet Josh Duhamel's character, Nick, who's the best man. He strolls in late with his ringer on, like, cherry pie blaring as he, like, drops his blackberry. So he's like, uh, that's basically his personality in a nutshell. Um, At the (laughs) wedding, right? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: His, like, personality. They were like, Spaz got hit by lightning do we need to write anything else? Like, I think we're done. Next character.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At the wedding reception, he keeps like jumping in to save Beth from various embarrassing situations. When she can't break a vase that symbolizes good luck, he needs to do it for her. When she doesn't speak Italian, he has to translate her maid of honor speech and he doesn't even do it. Well, he's saying all the words wrong, which is supposed to be funny, but.
0: He can, he can, okay, so he steps in with, like, he has fluent Italian when it works for him, and then she says, like, some pretty straightforward things, and he's like, I don't know. I'm like, you translated this more complicated thing. I feel like you could be fine.
1: i <laughs> say, I don't know, don't start making up words so it sounds like she's an idiot. Yeah. But she never knows that he does that to her because she doesn't speak Italian, so... They bond over the fact that the married couple just got hitched in two weeks, and there wasn't time for a credit check, which was, like, the statement that they, like, bond over. Power goes out, and they almost kiss. Uh, Beth decides she's going to take her dad's advice and follow her heart. But then she sees Nick kissing another woman by the fountain. mm Who hasn't been there? She does what any gal would do. Grabs a bottle of champagne, jumps in the fountain, delivers a soliloquy about how she's never going to find love. (laughs) In a thunderstorm. (laughs) And for good measure, she pockets a handful of the coins from the fountain including a poker chip, which, like, I didn't realize you could use a poker chip as, like, a lucky coin when you toss it into a fountain. Like, it has no monetary value. Can you just throw anything into the fountain?
0: I thought that was going to be the twist of the movie, that they were like, the poker chip didn't work. <laughs> right, because it's not real money. <laughs> yeah, Got to put that moolah in if you want to get that love magic. <laughs>
1: right. But this is actually a good question. Are you someone who, like, throws coins into fountains yes when I have changed which is
0: rare because I, I, I don't have a lot of cash but I do like doing that kind of thing
1: yeah are you yeah so I feel like I have to redeem myself for last week when I came off like a cynical like because <laughs> I am a romantic I think but so it it made me think of this like corny story from like A bunch of years ago, I was at, like, a casino with, like, this guy that I was involved with on and off, and we walked past, like, a fountain, and I think I, like, threw, like, a quarter in or whatever, and he asked me something along the lines, like, if whatever I, like, if what I wish for has ever, like, come true, and I remember answering something along the lines of, like, no, but it doesn't stop me from making them, which I felt was, like, very, like... I know. And that speaks, I think, to my, like, I'm not all cynical, just a little cynical.
0: I've never seen this side of you. (laughs) I like it. Drink her out more. Uh,
1: It's a constant battle, but I have my moments. (laughs) (laughs) So Beth steals the coins. And as she does that, it takes the love from the people who threw them into the fountain. So it's a divorced middle-aged Danny DeVito who's the Sausage King of, I think, Chicago. <laughs> no, or is that a, is it Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> he's the Sausage King of somewhere. And there's a street magician played by John Heater coming off of Napoleon Dynamite, which was like six years before, but he's still doing like the same shtick, which I think he's still doing.
0: No, they literally bring Pedro in to be his sidekick in this movie. He's got nothing else.
1: (laughs) I said the same thing. I'm like, this is six years later, and they got Pedro in as his sidekick again. Like, yeah, he probably just called him up, like, so you doing anything this weekend? Do you want to come just hold a video camera and (laughs) make a couple extra bucks? We're all over it. Move on. (laughs) (laughs) I actually don't like Napoleon Dynamite. (laughs) It's my secret shame. Not so secret because I tell everyone who asks. <laughs> uh, but we also have someone I dislike more than Napoleon Dynamite: Dak Shepard. I fucking hate Dak Shepard. Really? I do.
0: I I don't like his characters
1: usually that he plays, but I like him as a person with Kristen Bell. Okay, that's a good that's a good clarification. I don't know him as a person. He might be a very nice human being. I don't like the characters he plays. I should say that.
0: Just to clarify, I don't actually know him as a person either. I just like his
1: public persona. Yeah, I don't have a problem with his public persona. I have a problem with the characters he plays and the fact that basically Kristen Bell was his meal ticket for like ever. I feel like, like basically, she would just have him in his in her movies. Like this isn't the first time he's played like a walk on. Oh, he has a big role in this, I guess. But
0: I thought this was the movie they met
1: on. I'm not sure. I think they met in. 2007 so i'm not sure when this filmed but maybe i think had they were just dating i think they had just started dating but he jumped right into her movies unless oh are you saying that you think he was on this movie and they met on the movie like she didn't take him aboard this movie yeah i don't know maybe i'll like him a little more if that's true because i always feel like he's just like oh reading the script honey uh Anything in there for me that I could I could do?
0: She's sarcastically like, yeah, this really narcissistic vain model. And he was like, Oh yeah, I could I could do that. <laughs> he takes his shirt off. <laughs> like this.
1: Um, <laughs> uh, and then we also have Will Arnett who's playing a fake Italian artist character.
0: He's in Miles Brown Face. Oh my god. The whole movie. That's so true. Oh, fuck. And I think that's uh, maybe the
1: only person of color. And he's not a person of color. He's just wearing brown face to be. (laughs) Does he take it off when he's revealed to be American? Or so that's just maybe maybe someone I don't that's fucked up. I don't know.
0: I think he's supposed to. I don't know. It's bad. It's really
1: bad. (laughs) So, yeah, that that happened. And those are the four guys whose coins she knows she has stolen. Question for you: Fuck, marry, kill out of those four? Whoa. I can go first if you want to think about it. I would, <laughs> I would kill Dak Shepard's character, not not Shepard, just his character. I would. See, now this is going to make me want to fuck Will Arnett's character a little worse because he just said he <laughs> that he is not very culturally sensitive. But I probably would fuck Will Arnett and marry Danny DeVito. Oh, my God. I'm
0: glad you said that because this whole time it's like, I think I'd marry Danny DeVito because his character is like the only one that's like somewhat bearable. Like I feel like he like is asks her questions about her job and like helps her with things and the rest. I'm just like I I don't think I could listen to you for more than five seconds. I think I'd fuck Dak Shepard and I'd kill John
1: Heater. <laughs> I'd kill John Heater too, but I didn't know if I could kill two people. <laughs> Actually, when you play fuck Mary, kill. I saw this debate going around online. Do you, when you say, like, marry, can you fuck the guy you marry to? Or is it a platonic marriage?
0: Oh, I like to interpret it differently every time. <laughs> I, I, I feel like if you're marrying them, you have to fuck them once. And then the rest of the time, it's like, yeah, you can just be friends. If you want it to go that way, that's kind of why I was, like, thinking to Danny DeVito, like, if these are my four options, like, yeah, I guess I'll get, like, the one out of the way. And the rest of the time, like... <laughs> you have a headache for the next, like, 40 years. <laughs> yeah. And then, but then sometimes when there are lots of good options, and I tend to think of it as, like, yeah, I'll just fuck this person all the time. There's no one in this group that I'd want that with, but... I think you can play that way.
1: Okay, yeah. I always played in my head that you you fucked the person you married and also the person you fucked, and then you just got to kill somebody. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently that's not, like, the popular opinion. But whatever. Well, then it should be called Fuck, Friend,
0: Kill. Right. <laughs> not, fuck, so. back,
1: friend, kill.
0: <laughs> that's four of them. <laughs> I then that case I would friend Will Arnett because we would do lots of wine and paint nights together because I always want people to go with me to those and yeah
1: yeah he would <laughs> and then you could get really bad spray tans together yeah, yeah. And lots
0: of foot massages <laughs> i feel marry Will Arnett. <laughs> I mean, I'll just teach him about why brown face is not a good thing. And we'll work on taking that off together.
1: Let's blame the director. I feel like maybe Will Arnett was like, this is a bad idea. And they're like, no, 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 trust us. This is is the way. I like Will Arnett. (laughs) I don't want to think bad about him. So these four men are basically now under her spell and they're aggressively stalking her. And like, Will Arnett even has the line, like, in Italy, when a woman runs away, it means they love you, which is fucked up. We also have Dax Shepard taking his shirt off in the middle of a restaurant. And the street musician, I think his name is Lance, literally breaks into her apartment and hangs himself from her ceiling with Pedro filming him. Meanwhile, Nick is also interested. Remember Nick? He was Josh Duval's character. He's still in the movie. (laughs) He calls her from his, the frat house he lives in. Like he lives in this—I don't know how old he's supposed to be—but he lives in this apartment full of like neon bear signs, a poker table. Like yeah, it's yeah. like a frat house. Bobby Moynihan deserves better than this. <laughs> <thing>. <laughs>
0: he Does, but his character is so bad too. Like he's such a terrible friend. Yeah, but they, he also they just make weird visions. Like what? What's his name? Nick calls to ask her out. While, like, he sneaks away from his friends playing poker to call this girl and ask her out. And then they're like, where are you? And yelling at him. I'm like, this clearly, like, wasn't a good time to do this. So Why didn't you do it before the game or after? Why do you have to hide in your kitchen in the middle of the game and be like, this is
1: the time? <laughs> or text her. <laughs> I guess that's not a good idea either. <laughs> Don't take relationship advice from me. <laughs> So, he does call her. He asks her out. I forget if she says yes to him at this point. But, when she needs art for her big show, he steps in and offers up a photograph of him being struck by lightning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to say about this. I mean, he looked really good being struck by lightning. I don't know. <laughs> he looked perfectly fine. Yeah, it's... You know, I, don't,
0: I don't know what to do with this movie. I don't even know what this
1: point. is. <laughs> I know. So she talks to her sister and her sister's husband, Umberto. And it turns out they know everything about this legend of the coins in the fountain. That's and up. no one questions this. They're just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you throw, if you take the coins from the fountain, that person you've taken their love. And now they're going to follow you around until you throw the coins back in the fountain. <laughs> if I was Joan and I just married a man I met two weeks ago, and all of a sudden he's talking very matter-of-factly about the inner workings of love curses, I'm out of there. Like that's it. <laughs> I'm like, two weeks of fun.
0: I don't know. They're having—he's beautiful, and they look like they're having great sex while they make pancakes, so um, I can deal with some weird <laughs> coin
1: superstition. <laughs> As long as I didn't throw any coins into that fountain thing, like, cause then what I would think like, what if he found my coin? And that's why I wanted to marry him in two weeks. Your mind goes to the darkest. (laughs) Yep. That's true. (laughs) But for the sake of the movie, she needs to return the coins to the fountain to break the spell. So eventually Nick does take her on a date. They go to a restaurant where you eat in the dark and this part was, like, completely, like, there was no point to this scene. They just to, like, to give, like, like I think, what's her name? Kristen Schaal or something who's yeah. too good for this movie. deserves better than this. <laughs> and her character is, like, creepily, like, sniffing Nick in the dark and, like, being super creepy. Dax grabs Beth's hand in the dark and puts it on his abs, which is really fucked up.
0: Yeah. I just, how did so many good people say yes to this movie? Were there just like significant rewrites or what happened?
1: I don't know. There were three writers listed one is the director and then two other guys. I have no idea. Maybe they all, maybe everyone in the movie lost a bet. Maybe they like owed this guy money well they have money they could have just paid him I don't know honestly it's part of the divorce settlement that he got the friends and they all have or she
0: got the friends but they all have to do this one movie with him first
1: (laughs) okay this is one of the parts where I actually laughed when they're all in the dark and someone I'm not sure who said but someone's like who's this and Danny DeVito goes you'll live a worse nightmare (laughs) because he's the sausage king that was funny to me. <laughs> um, Nick asks her where she wants to go, where she'll feel safe, and she says she wants to go to work. <laughs> okay, she does work at the Guggenheim, so that's fair. Okay. This part really, I was this was a little bit like I don't know what tone they were going for with this part because they pause in front of a Picasso, and we get this like really like long kind of story beth is telling about like picasso's mistress 17 year old mistress oh yeah what's the most fucked up story
0: in art history she's romanticizing like and yeah it just made me want to uh do art and all relationships should be like that (laughs) Like what fucking happened to you in your childhood
1: (laughs) her name was marie therese walter she was 17 when picasso fell in love with her Picasso was already married and 30 years her senior, so they kept their affair a secret. But he documented his passion by hiding her initials in some of his paintings. Of course, Picasso wasn't completely ready to settle down, and he left Marie-Thérèse for Dora Doromar, just like he left his wife Olga for Marie-Thérèse. But Marie-Thérèse never stopped loving Picasso. She hung herself after his death. Yeah, like, I'm waiting for this to become some kind of, like, awkward, like, joke, because that's the tone of the movie to, like, or just do something, like, make it, like, so dark that Josh Duhamel is like, what is going on? Why are you telling me this story? But it never does. It's, like, played very, like, serious, like, she's romanticizing this thing, and then it just ends, and they have, like, a moment, and I'm like, ooh, that's, like, a weird way to, like... Get in the mood.
0: It's super, super uncomfortable and wrong and clearly written by a man. (laughs)
1: Yeah, Yeah, like, oh, this 17-year-old girl fell in love with a 47-year-old man who fucked her over and then she killed herself. She I never got over
0: it. <laughs> the director like, "Do you hear that, ex-wife? This is how you're supposed to feel about me? How do you ever move on?"
1: This whole movie is just to like to try to get back his ex-wife, and then it failed miserably because it was terrible. And his ex-wife's like, never fucking speak to me again.
0: <laughs> I bet his ex-wife liked his her job more than uh, she liked him.
1: Oh, definitely. So. Somehow telling this story gets her back to his apartment and she sees his poker table and sees the same type of chip that she had stolen from the fountain. So she puts two and two together and assumes that he was the person who threw the poker chip into the fountain. It has no monetary value, but was apparently accepted currency at a love fountain. (laughs) Good to know. (laughs) Packing all my poker chips next time I go to Rome. So update on how to break the curse from the experts. Joan talked to Umberto's Nana, who told her that, don't worry, you don't have to go back to Rome. You can also break the curse by giving the coins back to the people who they belong to. Well, that's convenient. (laughs) Oh, nice. I bet, like, they just didn't have the budget to go back to Rome. Like, someone saw a few cuts of the movie and they were like, (laughs) We can't, we can't give you more money. And they were like, all right, don't worry.
0: That's so true, it hurts.
1: <laughs> so Kate Makuchi decides it's better for Beth to have four men obsessed with her than zero. <laughs> so she
0: steals the coins. This made no sense to me. Like they've been like showing up to her work and assaulting her. And <laughs> Kate Makuchi's just like, it's for your own good. I'm like, what? No! <laughs> like, in what world? <laughs> It's clearly
1: making her miserable. Honestly, like, these, like, the sometimes they take the quirky best friend role in rom-coms, like, way too far to the point where it's, like, they're not even real characters. Like, this woman is not a real character. She's just there for, like, weird, awkward comic relief that's not even funny. It's just uncomfortable. And then to do this to her friend.
0: The only thing I can say in the movie's favor on that is that it treats all of its characters that way. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that's very true (laughs) so all the men now show up at her apartment and what would be very creepy and like off-putting they try to make okay because danny devito has a line that's like you know love is putting someone else's needs ahead of our own so how can we help you with your nick like instead of being like crazy obsessed with her and trying to like you know Corner her in like her apartment. There's four of them. They they take the edge off by making it like, no, we love you. So we're gonna help you. Which is a relief because that could have went a whole other way, which would have been a different kind of movie. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, here's the other part. I laughed when the lights go out in this scene, and then they go back on, and John Heater's magician character goes, "That wasn't me."
0: (laughs) I think I laughed at that one too.
1: (laughs) and i don't even think he's funny but that one line got me really bad so okay when they were in the tiny car i did laugh a little (laughs) just a little this pissed me off though because
0: okay so to go ahead a little they take the tiny car to the guggenheim and then drive it into the elevator because they need to go to the (laughs) to the top floor and i'm like okay You literally paid to use the Guggenheim and its interior and its name in this movie. The one museum that is literally just a ramp, the entire thing. (laughs) Like, you're not going to use that for the car joke? Like, I just assumed the whole thing was a setup for that. And then they go in the fucking elevator, and I was like, why the fuck did you pay for the Guggenheim? Just (laughs) build a fake museum set somewhere. (laughs)
1: You zigged, (laughs) they (laughs) zagged actually i think is this around that when did the italian job come out i feel like they were like ripping off that like those little cars and like i have no concept of time i think the italian job was earlier but like like they go in small spaces so they're like oh we can just go in this elevator but it was dumb and then what happens to the car they would 100 percent get kicked out of that museum the second someone saw a car in the elevator
0: yeah because don't they break through the doors too
1: yeah good point so yeah, this movie is not realistic. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's looking for realism in this movie, you looked in the wrong place. So, okay. If we don't think this movie can get more outrageous, we now have a weird pointless scene where Nick and his friend are at a bar and we just get a random Shaq cameo for no reason. Shaquille O'Neal is just in this bar and it's like basically like, hey, hey, and then he's done. That's all he did. Deserves better than this. <laughs> he did, but he wanted this. Shaq
0: asked for this.
1: <laughs> what was the script they showed these people? That I don't know. It just must have been so different. I wonder. because That's a good point. Yeah, no way Angelica Houston read this script and was like, yeah. Maybe she, like, maybe the director is, like, her, like, nephew or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> Could be. <laughs> So Kristen Bell finally gives the coins back to all the owners. And meanwhile, John Heater's character does like a trick where he conveniently has multiple identical poker chips in his on his person. And he does a little like magic trick with all the poker chips. And one of them rolls away and it rolls to Nick and he picks it up and he still loves her. So she's like, oh, good. It wasn't the coin. They they
0: they use the Guggenheim ramp for the coin falling town, and I did appreciate that. But if you use if you buy the Guggenheim, use it for both things.
1: (laughs) Yeah, get your money's worth. (laughs) So they end up getting married in the same church as the sister did, which like get your own thing. Right? I was gonna say like maybe that's being petty,
0: but like how pissed would you be if like your your like sister or friend? a year after you got married it was like, I'm going to do the same venue, same look, same exact thing. Like, let's just do it over again. <laughs> like, okay, but
1: maybe you'd like to try something new. Yeah. I mean, it's not like they had a great experience they met there, but he also made out with another girl right by the fountain. Like, it's not like they have, like, spectacular memories of that run-in. But they probably, you know, needed to save money and not do a second location. So,
0: oh yeah, the budget's cut at this.
1: The fountain was already there. They had it for another week. They were like, "All right, let's just do this scene here." So, now we have the realization come that the coin that she gave back to Nick wasn't the real coin. John Heater found the real one. But and this bothers me too because there were three. How does he know? But this is the one. But anyway, he has the second coin that he's like, oh, this was actually the real coin, not the one you gave him. This
0: scene is also about one minute after the scene where he gives her the coin. So there's, like, not even time for, like, there to be suspense or anything that happens that, like, this is, like, a reward or a payoff that we get the second scene. It's just like, oh, Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Totally. And yeah, I remember looking at the time, it was like three, four or five minutes left max to the movie when like that comes. So she gives him the real coin back and he's like, what are you talking about? Why are you giving me this? Like I never threw anything into the fountain and they're all happy, but turns out the saucy priest was the one who threw the coin in and he's been spending the whole like year all you know trying to repent for his like feelings for her which is actually the only clever thing i think in the whole movie
0: i thought so too i also appreciate that the priest is the weird brother from wedding crashers
1: no way oh i didn't realize that oh that's good so now everyone is happy danny devito's with angelica houston Jackson and Will Arnett end up having this little flirty exchange, which actually I think they made kind of a cute little couple. So, that was kind of nice. Yeah, everyone's happy. The end.
0: <laughs> um, I have to say, I enjoyed your summary about 20 times more than I enjoyed the movie. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. Usually, uh, <laughs> like, not just out of the movies we've watched for the pod, but, like, movies ever one of the worst movies I've ever watched
1: yeah it's like it's almost like they took like the formulaic like rom-com and just like made it even worse like they took all the things that people like about the rom-com and just like fucked them all up and made it like worse yeah (sighs) well this movie really want makes me want to get dragged out (laughs)
0: boom, done,
1: nailed it
0: (laughs) well on that note should we talk about Drag Me to Hell?
1: (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up we probably should (laughs) let's do it (laughs) Drag Me to Hell
0: is a 2009 horror movie from Acclaim's horror, I can't say that word I shouldn't have put it in my script so many times (laughs) (laughs) Acclaim from Acclaim's Horror director Sam Raimi of Evil Dead and Spider-Man Fame, that is the original Spider-Man movie fame. I'm talking Toby McGuire, which now like I love those movies at the time. And now having seen like Tom Holland as Peter Parker, I'm like, it is weird that there was like a 30-year-old man like <laughs> <laughs> this point I love them, but I see that it's weird
1: now. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I loved I love the Toby Maguire Spider-Man and I love Tom Holland's Spider-Man and it is weird. <laughs> Very different vibes
0: for sure. But Drag Me to Hell stars Alison Lohman as a banker who falls under the curse of a gypsy and Justin Long, who I love, even though I hate like most of his movies, I love him, as her psych professor boyfriend. It's got a whopping 92% on Rotten Tomatoes which brings our total for this week to just over 100%. (laughs) (laughs) And also is an appropriate 90 minutes. Good job, Frayden. It's an underlooked masterpiece, in my opinion. And I think makeup nerds like me and no one else will be interested to note that it has special effects makeup by Greg Nicotero, Mm -hmm. uh, who does the the Walking Dead makeup. Um, And he's done, like, just a ton of shit. Like a lot of Sam Raimi's movies, a lot of Tarantino's movies. He did Screams in City. He did Suicide Squad, which isn't a good movie, but the special effects like I'm part of it. Uh, and most importantly, he did Spy Kids. So <laughs> most importantly. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, let's go into the trailer. <laughs> Mr. Jax, I was wondering if you'd made any decision regarding the assistant manager's position. It's
1: between Stu and yourself.
0: Stu Ribbon, the new guy?
1: Stu's someone who's not afraid to make the tough decisions.
0: I'm perfectly capable of making the tough decisions. I'll let you know as soon as I decide, okay? Will you help me? Please.
1: Okay. We have an elderly woman asking for an extension on her mortgage payment. We would have to throw her out of her house. We've already granted her two extensions. It's a tough decision. Your call. Another extension is out of the question. Where will I live? I'm really sorry. Never have I begged for anything, but now no. I Mrs. have. I Before you, please. I beg you. Oh, please let go. Please let go. Security!
0: Oh. You shit.
1: it will be you who comes
0: begging to me.
1: Can we still be friends cuz I really don't like Justin Long?
0: No, I understand that. I understand that completely because I I really hate him and I hate the movie in general. He's just not that into you, but I think his character is also problematic. And then seeing him in the tusk makeup has scarred me in a way
1: that I don't think I can ever recover from. <laughs> But I do I do like him in this movie. I actually um, don't find him believable as the leading man in a rom-com. Like, I find him to be very... It's not even that he's not attractive. Like, I'm not... It has nothing to do with his looks. He's just kind of like a smarmy, like, kind of like... Um, he's he a plays, <laughs> Yeah. He always plays these roles. And it's like, I don't find that type of character attractive at all and every time I watch a rom-com where he's getting the girl or like there's a girl who's trying to end up with him I am baffled but beyond belief I'm like this does not seem why would you want this (laughs) why is this your end game because they have low (laughs) self-esteem
0: that's your lesson of the day
1: What does that say about me? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I love him, but also all this stuff. Poor man's Jimmy Fallon, I feel like. But anyway, sorry. <laughs> There's not, no bearing on the movie, except that I find Just his character. Of the side. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we start off, there is. A young boy who is sick and he's taken to see a woman in California somewhere. His parents say has, he has been sick since he stole a coin from a gypsy three days ago. So we automatically know that this movie is probably going to be racist. Because if you're blaming gypsies, uh, I feel like you're not off to a great start or setting yourself up for success.
1: So many movies use, like, gypsy curses, too. Yeah. I I do feel
0: like, to to this movie's credit... Sam Raimi, I think, frequently references classical horror, whether it be the Universal movies or, like, H.P. Lovecraft, because that's the big thing in The Evil Dead, is it's all from the Necronomicon. I don't know if I said that right. I always fuck it up. So I do, I will give it a little bit of credit, and then I feel like it probably came from a place of, like, wanting to use more traditional lore, but it's still problematic as fuck. And also, like, every time a character of color is shown in this movie, they are just a stereotype. Like, even the family we see up front, like, people in America do speak Spanish. But I just think it's weird that they're trying to, like, exoticize them in that way, almost, it feels like, rather than portray any sort of realism.
1: Yeah, I didn't know what. So I know it's Pasadena in the 60s, and I wasn't sure what, like, Pasadena was like in the 60s. So maybe it was, you know, maybe maybe it had like a Spanish community. I don't know.
0: I mean, it's just given the way they treat their other characters of color, it seems like a pattern more than any sort of realistic one-off. Yeah, the other so, one? Oh no, mm.
1: there's like one or two.
0: I got them written down. I'll uh, take one
1: or two non-white people in this entire movie. In uh, all both movies. they <laughs> uh, so all in this one.
0: Yeah, because <laughs> when in rum, one in rum. When in Rome, despite being set in New York, has uh, no people of color other than Shaq. <laughs> Unless you're counting Will Arnett in brown races. And I
1: feel like Shaq paid to be in the movie. Like, I feel like Shaq was like, can I just walk on in your movie? I'm trying
0: a new thing. So, speaking of trying new things, they decide to try an exorcism on this little boy. He runs out of the room, flips over Bannister... Which I also did once too, although my thing was less bad <laughs> because I did catch myself <laughs> and then just hung there on the banister
1: until my dad was like, hey, you need know <laughs> And you didn't have like the hellfire coming up for you from underneath. So. I did not get dragged to hell. Yeah. <laughs> the,
0: the little boy falls on the floor, the floor opens up, and he gets dragged to hell. And then we get <laughs> some great credits. I love me a good Nosferatu shadow hand. So I'm all about that. And they do a lot of like the Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula shadow to ink dissolve, which I'm just like, I'm a sucker for it. I like, I like the aesthetic.
1: Yeah, it did look really cool. And is it just me or did the little kid getting dragged to hell look like Gollum falling into Mount Doom from uh, Lord of the Rings? It's like, he's like, ah, and then he's like... (laughs) That's all I could think about. And then I Googled the shot, and it literally looks just like it. You're so right. Because they pull the way they do his face, too, the eyes get really big. Just, he's, like, melting. I give them a lot of credit for killing the kid, too. Because I feel like you don't see a lot of movies that's open with, like, a little kid getting dragged to hell. It sets the stakes high
0: immediately. <laughs> and I think that's part of why it's great.
1: But so then we
0: meet Christine, played by Alison Lohman, and I do think if this movie was made today, this character would be played by Florence Pugh, mm. and I think it would be great. Just saying, if anyone, it's been it's been over ten years, so we're solidly in remake territory. <laughs> if anyone wants to take a stab at that, we see he can't bring he's still around. He could take another shot. <laughs> he could just do a. Yeah. I mean, they've redone all the Spider-Man movies. He redid Evil Dead himself. (laughs) Why not? Probably will happen. Christine's driving to work, and she's listening to locution lessons in her car. Uh, And she walks past some donuts very wistfully. So we understand that she's trying to make a new version for herself. She goes into work. She works at a bank. She asks her boss if he has made any decisions on the regional manor position. And he says it's between her and Stu. Who she goes, the new guy. (laughs) And Stu is clearly the worst. But her boss says he can make tough decisions. And he likes that. Christine says, I can make tough, tough decisions. And says that she'll prove it to him.
1: Yeah. The fact that he's having her teach Stu how to do shit is crazy. That, like, they're up for the same promotion
0: yeah, it's
1: sexism and, at its finest. <laughs> and to get them sandwiches. And he's like, no, I want mine this way. It's like, fuck you, Stu.
0: I'll and then she brings too. it back. He's like, I, this isn't what I ordered. And she's like, yeah, no, you definitely didn't. He's clearly just trying to make her look bad. So Christine takes her lunch break to visit her boyfriend, Clay, played by Justin Long. She, and she gives him a rare coin that she found at work because he's a nerdy coin collector. He seals it in an envelope and as she's leaving, she hears him on the phone with his mom who says she don't want her son dating no farm girl. But she says that in like a very rich voice. Not, like, how I <laughs> she this wants to
1: find so someone who can help him with her, with his career. Like it's a relationship. I'm not like trying to like network.
0: Yeah, or she, she knows someone who's looking for, like, someone to play tennis with, so. Wife material, clearly. That that seems to stress me out. That's always, like, my biggest fear is that, like, I don't know, someone's parents will think they can, like, <laughs> that they should do better than me. I'm <laughs> not good enough. I was like, oh, that one, that one hurt. So she goes back to work, and she's approached by an elderly woman, Mrs. Ganesh, who has One, they don't, the eye effect they give her, it's not even a cataract because she has like a very defined pupil in the middle. It's just like a white iris around her eye. She is there to ask for an extension on her mortgage, although she's already been granted two, otherwise her house will be taken away. And this woman just gave me nightmares the first time I saw this. She's just grotesque. Her nails are covered in fungus she's coughing loogies
1: into a handkerchief that's too much anytime she kept like putting her nails on the desk I kept thinking of Juno with the babies and the fingernails and I'm like oh my god this lady has like these like wooden fingernails that's like winter waiting
0: (laughs) if those were the nails I was seeing though I'd definitely say I'd abort that baby (laughs) get rid of it (laughs) <laughs> um, that is a Rosemary's baby devil child,
1: for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And she takes their teeth out and puts them on the desk. Like, that is... Oh. Uh, like, not even... So this woman also gave me nightmares, but not because of all, like, the scary stuff, but just because of how gross <laughs> and unsanitary <laughs> she was being. It's, it's a lot.
0: There's a lot of, like, body horror in this. So Christine goes to her boss and asks what she should do. She says it's up to her. It's a tough decision, and Christine says she'll take care of it. So, wanting to prove that she can make tough decisions and get the promotion, she denies the extension, which is cruel. But I like that they like at least set her up to be ambitious and give us some sort of logic behind her decisions. Because I feel like "One in Rome" is just like so all over the place.
1: It has like no character grounding anywhere. But she could have... What pisses me off about this is they give her that agency and, like, they have her making the tough decisions. But if she had just, like, used her compassion, she could have saved her own life. But instead, she does the tough thing and it ends up being, like, her downfall.
0: I do think also that it's it's almost like a false sense of agency because her boss is essentially, because they've had that conversation earlier... Where he says he can make tough decisions, and he's repeating the same language to her now. It's pretty clear what he thinks she should do. So he's leaving it up to her to do it, to like take it or leave it, but she doesn't really have a choice if she wants to go further in her career. (sighs) Yeah. Mrs. Ganesh does not take this news well. She starts groveling. She grabs onto her skirt and starts kissing it, which. I have to say, if this was a male character, this would clearly be assault. But I feel like they leave it like Christine's being unempathetic. Christine pulls back when she does this, and Mrs. Ganesh falls to the floor, and Christine calls for her security. Mrs. Ganesh is shocked by the whole situation and says, you shamed me, and security escorts her out. Christine's boss says she did the right thing. As far as he's concerned, the promotion is hers. She leaves and starts walking through the parking garage to her car alone, which, like, immediately pissed me off. Because, like, this woman's been assaulted at work today. Security had to escort someone out. And you're going to let her walk through this creepy parking garage to her car alone?
1: Also, it's not that late. Why are there not more cars in this parking garage? It's a huge parking garage, and there's literally just her car and then the creepy old lady's car. Where is everybody else? It's like a busy work day.
0: Yeah, because I think we're supposed to understand, like, I don't know, was she even the last to leave? Because there aren't even, like, cars that could be her colleagues' cars. It's really weird. But she gets in her car, and Mrs. Ganesh is in the backseat. She attacks her. She's really, like, oddly strong. Yeah. <laughs> <you know? laughs> I don't
1: know if she's some kind of supernatural strength. She's got to be. It's And also it's kind of like they're playing some of this for laughs, right? Because like some yeah. of this is very funny. And I'm like, yeah. I couldn't tell for a minute because some of it is gross and some of it is funny. And I couldn't really get which they were going for. I mean, I guess both. But like I kept being distracted by not knowing if it was supposed to be serious gore or funny gore because it kept teetering and I couldn't grasp which one they were trying for
0: I think it's definitely trying to walk the line of both I think it's very similar to like Evil Dead 2 and what I would consider to be like splat stick where like you they want you to be grossed out but it's also supposed to be funny how it's happening like she gets the Christine starts hitting her with a stapler and she gets the stapler in the eye which is just, like, so disturbing to think about. But then um, she has this moment where she's surprised and her eye pops open and the staple flings out. Or, like, when her, her dentures fall out and she's kind of got, like, her gummy jaw all over Christine's Ugh. face, really. It is, like, gross and disturbing, but I think you're also supposed to find it, like, absurd.
1: And- yeah, wow. yeah. Because I really like horror comedy and I really like you know, very scary things. So this, I couldn't just get a grasp on what I was supposed to be feeling, which I think took me out of it a tiny bit. Cause I was like, this is funny. Oh, this is, I don't know. I don't know. So I had a little bit of a hard time with that because then like, they do really mean like the cat scene was horrifying and made me so sad. Funny at all. <laughs> I guess knowing that this
0: was Sam Raimi for me, I took it to be like a serious horror film. And then, like, just, like, those little moments felt more like tributes to, like, Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness and his earlier stuff. But, yeah, I feel like it it is a little disorienting, but I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Mrs. Ganesh steals a button off her jacket and curses it, then gives it back to her. Clay comes to get her. And I do love that this character, this Justin Long character, she starts to... Doubt herself and be like oh I, I should have been more compassionate and he's like no you did exactly the right thing like she had two extensions she hadn't played the bank like you did what you were supposed to do and validates her which felt nice given that the rest of the movie is punishing her for not
1: being compassionate. I feel like he could have believed her a little more though like I feel like there, there comes scene like when she wants to go to the psychic which I think comes soon mm-hmm. and he's very kind of like, no, we should go home. Like he, I don't know. I mean, yes, it's a random thing to want to do right after you've gone through this, but I wish he was just a little more supportive and like not acting like he was such. So like, I wrote down pretentious douche. <laughs> in my note.
0: Yes. Yes. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they, they do pass a fortune teller and she decides to go in. And this is another um, magical Brown person. If you're going to be a person of color in this movie, you need to have an accent and you should have some sort of magical power. just kind of seems to be the lay of the land. So he says that she's being haunted by a dark spirit, doesn't want to take her money. He knows about the button. Christine trusts him for this. Justin Long, I think, is rightfully skeptical of that one (laughs) because it's clearly missing on her sleeve on the hand that he's holding. (laughs) She goes home and is attacked by an unseen force. So much fun shadow work. Again, like, I love that Nosferatu aesthetic. I love this movie for the, for the shadow work. I think it's so cool. She has, like, so many pots, though, in her kitchen that are clinging. Does anyone own that many pots? I own one. <laughs> so she she gets knocked out by the shadow force, and Clay tells her that she's PTSD, PTSD. Don't worry
1: about it. Yeah, like, Clay continuously needs it to be a person. He doesn't, like, believe it's a shadow. I mean, I guess that is a hard thing to believe. I just, this is such a trope in so many horror movies when like the male character doesn't believe the female character's situation when she's cursed or being haunted, or if there's an invisible man or whatever, like no one believes them. And I just think, if you love someone, or if you've known someone a long time, and they tell you this, just believe them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. It's not logical, but like
0: I don't it. know. If one of my best friends was like this shadow horse attacked me in my room, I'd be like, "Cool, <laughs> you've been talking to your therapist recently? Would you like a recommendation?" Oh,
1: I, I had something to tell you, but now, now I don't. Know. <laughs> oh no, I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> that was very judgmental. <laughs>
1: everything good (laughs) it's such a scary and I guess this plays into like horror it's such a scary idea to not be believed Mm -hmm. and that is so terrifying so whenever it's at work I think that scares me more than any demon or curse or anything like that this idea that someone's not going to believe me if I say something and I think that's very terrifying and play doesn't believe her which yeah it makes sense but still
0: no i no i i got that i think that's why like movies that you understand how scary that is and use it well to make a point like invisible man or even things like jessica jones i think that's why they're able to be like so effective because it's something that applies like supernatural shit but it's also just about like assault and trauma in general that fear of like no one believing you and when they do manage to work it, that's a metaphor. So, the next day at work, Christine gets a very dramatic nosebleed that goes all over the place, <laughs> like very extreme. And I love how her boss is like, "It's in my mouth!" Oh my god, <laughs> that was so like so.
1: That I guess is a good example of it was so fake and I, like funny that you I couldn't take that seriously at all cuz it didn't even look like blood it just looked like red red paint or something and it's yeah. everywhere it was not realistic to be any sort of actual thing that could happen you would die if you projectiled all that blood out <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't i don't think we're
0: going for realism in this one either also, I- <laughs> Still more realistic than one in Rome. True. So she she decides she's had, like, enough of this, and she's going to go and find Mrs. Ganesh and ask her to take the curse back. When she gets to Mrs. Ganesh's house, her granddaughter opens the door, and this gave me, like, some real Buffalo Bill vibes because her granddaughter goes, you
1: used to be a real fat girl, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Were you a great big fat person? <laughs>
0: I, I almost wonder if they were referencing that because the, the shots themselves of, like, her standing in the doorway are, are very similar. Ooh. But her granddaughter tells her to come in, and she can talk to Mrs. Ganesh, and she walks into a funeral where, of course, she has to, like, fall, have the corpse, like, fall on her and then, like, rehab its mouth all over her face <laughs> like it was in the car. Oh, my God. The
1: time on vomit. vomit. Uh, that was the grossest thing I think I've seen in a very long time. Like, in her mouth, like, that, I was just, well, that uh, freaked me
0: out, too, because I'm, like, that's probably embalming fluids. So, like, I feel like if you swallow that shit, that's gotta be, like, deadly. <laughs> but, uh, anywho, a psychic will cure it. So she goes <laughs> back to Rom. Rom tells her the demon haunting her is called Lamia. And she has three days to appease him before he takes her soul. And then he gives her a very convenient book he has on hand about animal sacrifices. <laughs> I think the, the title's
1: literally something like animal sacrifices, what they are and how to do them. <laughs> yeah, I think it's animal sacrifices in service of deities. He's <laughs> like, I just have this book laying around. I also know conveniently exactly which curse has befallen you. Yeah,
0: day. <laughs> He tells her that one way to get rid of Lamia would be to do an animal sacrifice, obviously. She goes home and is attacked again by Lamia. And this scene, I think, is really great because they show the hooves on the shadow and they follow her. Up the stairs, she closes the door. You see them at the bottom. And then they transform into hands reaching under the shadow. And she's whipped all over the room and knocked around. I also really appreciate that she has one of those, like, hang-on kitty posters in her room. (laughs) Oh, it makes this scene even worse. Because, of course, foreshadowing. (laughs) Since they've shown us so many shots of the cat. She she decides she's had enough, and she kills the
1: cat as an animal <laughs> sacrifice. I'm petting my cat. I feel, he was watching the movie with me, and I was like, don't look. Don't look. I, hope, I hope Sherlock didn't
0: hear that. I don't want to traumatize him.
1: Yeah. Luckily, he doesn't speak English, so it's okay, but... <laughs> uh. <laughs> Also, when she goes to bury the cat, I swear the cat she goes to bury, was a different color than her actual cat, but, like, I didn't rewind to check because I couldn't watch it again, but, like, I feel like it looked different.
0: It's it's definitely a different size. I would (laughs) not be surprised if it was a different color as well. As she's burying her cat, she's murdered. Clay shows up to take her to his parents for dinner. His mom's being a real bitch to her because she grew up on a farm. And even though the whole dinner, she's clearly accomplished and responsible, she doesn't come around to her until she reveals that her dad was an alcoholic. And then she's like, oh, okay, you, you must be a fine person. My dad was an alcoholic. Then Christine starts seeing things again. She sees an eye and the harvest cake she made. She spits up a fly. She hears noises and she freaks out. Clay's parents are not happy. There's also, there's one really great line in the scene where his mom's ribbing him because they met at a bar and
1: he goes it's not a clan rally it's a bar there's another line that I pinpointed to where she's like talking and she's like I had a cat and Justin Long's like you have a cat (laughs) you know how cats are they come and they go and I'm like what She's so unnecessarily awkward
0: and sketchy about it. Like, just say yes, and then make up a story about the cat and address that later. Christine goes back to Ram. He knows somebody who can help her, but he needs $10,000 in cash. Long coughs it up for her because now he wants to be a supportive boyfriend, randomly out of the blue. She's
1: eating a carton of ice cream, and he's like, aren't you lactose intolerant? Like, if you think this goat curse is going to come get you, the last place you want to be when he comes is sitting on the toilet violently ill because you ate ice cream.
0: I just had a very different thought to that where I'm like yeah if I'm gonna die in two days and I'm lactose intolerant like I'm gonna have mac and cheese I'm gonna have pizza I'm gonna have ice cream like I'm going out with a bang why not it's all gonna end anyways
1: I I don't know I think like but if you're just so sick on the toilet and then Lamia comes you're like dying from that and then dying from Like, I mean, at that
0: point, at least I I had the last few happy hours. I wasn't on my, like, diet until the end, just being miserable.
1: How will feel, like, sweet relief after that? You're like, just
0: take me. Um, I I understand her. I I connect with her. So she goes to the woman from the beginning of the movie. We get a name now. Her name is Sean. Another person of color, again, with magical powers, because if you're not white, you should be magical in the world of Drag Me to Hell. If you want to have representation in your movies, you can't just make people stereotypes and then be like, but we did it.
1: <laughs> like, but look, we have uh, more than when in Rome. <laughs> Do we get something for that? Yeah, it's
0: it's just all over the place. So... Sean's plan is she's going to channel Lamia into her, and then she'll put her hand on this goat that they've brought in. Lamia will go into the goat, and they can slaughter the goat. But when they do that, the goat bites someone else in the room, so they can't kill it. And <laughs> this is also very evil Like, where this guy just has, like, a transformed face and is laughing maniacally and floating about the table. So because Sean can't kill the guy, she pushes the demon out of the room, and then dies. <laughs> oh.
1: Okay. I had two things with this scene. First, you have this medium who's been waiting for a chance to face Lamia again for like the last 40, 50 years. She's got great skin. Yeah. She's, yeah. She, one, she has great skin. <laughs> two, Chris could have negotiated down this 10 grand because Sean needs her. She's been waiting to face this thing for, like, 50 years. She should be paying Chris for the opportunity. Damn. He needs her. So, I mean, 10K is a little steep, if you ask me. I think, yeah, she should have renegotiated. Also, Lamia, when he goes into the goat, the anim- this thing looks like an animated Disney goat. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this i wanted it to start singing (laughs) like i feel like it's very funny looking goat
0: yeah this is definitely one of the funnier scenes i feel like in the movie although it's also really dark and then sean dies i don't know everything's confusing so after this ron lets her know that they have not killed the demon so it's still up to get her they only push it out of the room Her only way out at this point is she has to find someone that she can make a gift of the curse button to. So Clay is driving Christine home and they almost hit a man who tells her she's going to hell. Foreshadowing. (laughs) And her envelope with the button falls onto Clay's floor and starts mixing with all of his paperwork there. She spends all night at a cafe trying to figure out who to give the button to. She almost gives it to Stu. Stu but she doesn't. And I was just like, just give it to Stu. Like, out of all the times to develop compassion, suddenly this is the time you're going to do it. Just like, lean in, give it to Stu. <laughs>
1: yeah. Stu's done so many bad things to her. Not to say that anyone deserves a curse. Stu but it's Just for times. <laughs> I mean, and, yeah. The one problem I had is she, when she's looking at the guy with the oxygen tank and she was going to give it to him until she saw he had a wife. I'm like, this curse isn't about, like, what happens to you when you're alive. This curse will yeah. take your soul forever. So who cares if he's on an oxygen tank? Like, eternity, he won't have an oxygen tank. you I mean, like, a longer life of doing good that you're going <laughs> to take away from Right. <laughs> but, I mean, Stu was going to do nothing except...
0: Stu's going to hell anyways, eventually. So just get him there earlier. It's going to be fine. So she has this weird consultation with Rom about gypsy death rules, and they decide that she can give the button back to Mrs. Ganesh, even after she's died. She digs up the grave. She gets in there. She shoves the button down her throat. Rain, rain everywhere. The the grave's filling up so fast. It fills up entirely, and, like, two minutes
1: from this little rainstorm. Also, I feel like they had to make her a farmer to make it believable that she dug a six-foot hole of wet dirt. Like, I didn't <laughs> believe it, even knowing she was a farmer. No, I, I definitely didn't, but if you had told me she was born and raised in L.A., I'd believe it a little less. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh,
0: but, but she does it. She shoves the button down Mrs. Ganesh's throat, and she has some line of, like, I win, bitch. <laughs> the next morning, everything's great. She gets a call from her boss that she's gotten the promotion. She's going away for a weekend with Clay. We see him on the train tracks. He's got a ring in his pocket. She buys a new blue jacket. She's going to start over. She wears the jacket out to Clay, and he's all like, What happened? And she's like, Oh, I, I just wanted to throw the old thing away. I just want a new start. And he's like, Oh, that's too bad. Because I found this in my car yesterday. And he hands her the envelope with the button. And she realizes she accidentally buried the coin. Which I mean,
1: like, you think you'd check that. <laughs> yeah, you think you would take it out of the envelope. It's not like the dead person's going to know you're trying to give her a button. Yeah. The envelope it, was just for a live person to not know. <laughs> it's
0: It's that... That part, I didn't believe. But she freaks out when she sees the button and she falls backward onto the train tracks. A train is coming. Clay's yelling for help. Someone help her. And then the train tracks open. Fire. It's like Gollum. (laughs) She gets dragged to hell. Which I just... I, what I really appreciate this movie is that it has the scene in the beginning where it's like, yeah, no, this is what's going to happen. And you keep waiting the whole time for it to be subverted. And I was like, yeah, no, we told you like, this is what's going to happen. <laughs> and, like, it just goes along with it. And it's it's great. So, great fake out. is just a long curse now. Who can say? And then we roll the credits. And that's dragged me to hell.
1: Yeah, I always, so, I think... I like the literalness, but also I'm someone who's always waiting for like a well-delivered twist to happen. And like, I just think, I mean, obviously this is a good movie. Well, a lot of people really like this movie. I, I was on the fence, but imagine if like, I would think, okay, so clay has the button in his pocket. He picked it up out of his car. To me that would mean that he accepted the gift of this button and now shouldn't he be the one who's dragged to house? So imagine if that scene, she falls onto the train tracks, you think she's gonna she gets hit by this train, and then hell opens up and takes him.
0: And then After you just see the claws coming up to him, the shadow claws. That's what I thought too the first time I watched it. But I also I also just appreciated, I don't know, because I think I'm always looking for a good twist too, how much it was just like no, she. We told you she's going to hell. <laughs> We're yeah. gonna do it because <laughs> that in its way was its own twist, and I I
1: liked it. It was like a fake, a double fake out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was clever, and the effect is cool because then she's very much not hit by the train. She's instead dragged to hell because you see the train coming. Is she gonna get hit? Nope. She's going to hell. <laughs> one-way ticket to hell <laughs> oh, I, I hope the computer couldn't
0: pick up me pouring my wine <laughs> my wine my wine is called Deaths and Lessons for anyone who can't see what I'm showing a Mandarin
1: <laughs> oh, everyone except me <laughs> so what did these movies have in common? sexism and cursed objects <laughs> <laughs> Sums it right up. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> One thing that comes up in this and comes up in a bunch of episodes we've done is the idea of women's compassion being the thing that does the men. Mm-hmm. And here, I think it's almost the reverse, or it actually is the reverse because. Chris's compassion could have saved her life, but instead she makes the quote unquote tough decision, does what her boss wants her to do and does not give the old lady her extension and is cursed because of it, which is her going against her nature of being compassionate. And then you have one in Rome where Beth is this career driven woman who's actually broken up with by her, boyfriend at the beginning because she puts work first and ultimately through the movie she needs to change to be happy so she eventually screws over her job Nick has to come in and save her career without her even knowing by bringing the photograph of him getting struck by lightning but she's she's ready to just toss her career out the window because she loves him or because she's feeling this love and ultimately, like, that's her journey in the movie is to be like, oh, actually, like, work doesn't matter so much. And I'm going to put love first.
0: What I find frustrating about these movies is that, like, or maybe maybe not frustrating, but that, like, both women are punished for not being compassionate enough. But everything around them demands that they can't be compassionate in order for them to succeed Particularly with the Angelica um, Houston and uh, the boss character in Drag Me to Hell, it's very clear that if they let their compassion rule their emotions, then they can't be successful. They can't be, they can't move forward in their careers. So it's like they're being punished for not having those things, but there's also not really any other option or way for them to succeed. Except, like you said, in One in Rome, when she decides, well, I don't want this career
1: anyways. Yeah, they're not, they're both, they're mutually exclusive. So you can either have, or is that, are they mutually exclusive or are they not mutually exclusive? They are mutually exclusive. They are mutually exclusive. And you can't have them both. So you can either be career driven, get the promotion, get, have the successful show, or... You can have compassion and love, and throw away your career goals. And why does it have to be that way?
0: I think it goes along with like the movie stance on like female ambition in general, and whether or not that's a good thing. Um, because I think like both movies center around we've got cis-het blonde women fighting for some kind of perfection in their overall life. What in Roe most definitely views Best Ambition as a negative thing? Drag Me to Hell, I think it's a little bit more complicated because I think there are two possible readings of it. One is that she's being punished for having any ambition and acting like a man instead of showing female compassion. The other is that I feel like it's kind of showing the impossibility of the American dream in some ways of this girl who almost wants to step out of her position as like a farm girl and someone who came from a more humble background. And she's trying to get out of that. And it's almost like there are these people it's set up for like clay and his family and Stu and her boss. And for her, it's like no matter how close she gets, it just feels unattainable. And the things she has to sacrifice along the way end up making it (laughs) almost Uh, almost become like, I don't know what I'm trying to say. The things she has to sacrifice along the way are are things that drag her soul to hell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and she's unfairly punished. Like, I feel everyone makes bad decisions or wrong or quote-unquote wrong decisions, and she is punished over and over and over again for them to the point where it's it's definitely like a pylon at a certain point it's like can this woman just can she live?
0: No, now? she can't. She has to go to hell. <laughs>
1: Got to go to hell. She'll go directly to hell. <laughs> it is it's like a a subversion of the American dream in which she is just fighting for it and just from the first scene of the movie like you said we know she's going to hell. There's no way there's no other ending and yeah, it's like the unattainability, but it's kind of like a like a perversion of a perversion of the American dream.
0: Yeah. And I, in some ways I guess when in Rome by making it so clear that she can't have both, does that too of like you want to go for your job, fine, but then you won't have love. Um and if you want to go for love, then fine, but give up your career and this idea of like the perfect family and the perfect career and that American dream is just
1: something you don't get to have. Well, for women, especially.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. No, you don't get to have if you're a woman. Yeah.
1: Women in rom-coms cannot, like they can have it all, but first they need to admit that the love is more important. Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of rom-coms will end with the woman getting the job or whatever, but, like, first they have to come to terms with the fact that they were wrong to put their career first, they should have put love first, and then they can get their success.
0: Or they'll get the job and decide they don't want it anyways because they've been chasing after all the wrong things and this isn't important anymore. Yeah, one thing I do think is really weird, though, for, like, how much these movies seem to in some ways I, so I guess both movies are idealizing compassion, but they also seem to be shitting on women, but they, they have these like contradictions in their main characters of in when in Rome we have Beth versus her sister. And it's kind of this realism versus idealism attitude of like Beth and her mom versus her sister and the dad. And I think they definitely portray the more real characters as negative and bitter and the ideal characters as like your heroes and like yeah what they're doing is over the top and ridiculous and they seem senseless but like how great because they believe in love and
1: they really idealize that Um, percent. and i honestly i can't this is just a read that i'm getting from knowing that the director who also wrote on this movie was going through a divorce at the time. I feel like his perception is in the Don Johnson character, like in that kind of, and that might be why it kind of like leans itself in that direction. Cause they definitely favor that. Like, Oh, they've been together for two weeks. That is fucking insane to marry someone you met two weeks ago and maybe it'll work out. And that's great. But that's not like the law. That's not like the smart move.
0: You're probably so right. He's probably like, (laughs) <laughs> this is what I'm going to guess happened. The director cheated on his wife with some, like, 20-year-old blonde girl because she was at work all the time and then blamed on her, like, you were at work all the time, I had no choice, and isn't this just so romantic got swept off my feet? And then he went in Rome to prove it, and everyone was like, yeah, no, this movie sucks, you're And then I hope his wife went on to be, like, a producer on The Invisible Man. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I hope so. I hope it wasn't like the opposite. Like his wife fucked him over, and like now we're just shitting on him. And he really like wanted to make it work. He was
0: really trying. He's the best character. His wife came to his gala, with <laughs> him <laughs> <laughs> again, in an embarrassing way, and he just can't trust. <laughs> this is the idea for a movie that came to him when he was drunk in a fountain. But um. Drag Me and Held is a similar thing, not necessarily between, like, realism and idealism, but I think between intellect and intuition, where I think it's most noticeable between Ram uh, and Clay when they have their scenes interacting, and Clay is kind of going through, like, oh, it's just PTSD, and these are all the practical things, and he didn't take the money, and Ram is the psychic, obviously, so in touch with his intuition, And I think, again, Merch that, like, intuition, which is generally considered to, for better or worse, I think it's stereotyped as a feminine attribute where intellect is considered to be more masculine. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, they choose the feminine as the stronger attribute and then just punish their female character the whole
1: time. Yeah. It's very contradictory. Because yeah, because Clay is portrayed as like the logical one and the voice of reason, but he's wrong the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing about this curse and like the mechanics of the curse, I feel like every both of these movies have what I will refer to as like the curse experts. <laughs> who are just, like, put in the movie to know everything about these very specific curses.
0: They're exposition ghosts.
1: <laughs> exposition ghosts. <laughs> it's so true. And it's like no one questions their knowledge, even though they have no credentials to, have, to know this information. And it's Intuition. <laughs> to do it, we oh, yeah. have a book on animal sacrifice, and he's like, "Oh no, Lamia! Yes, it's the goat, and you—it's three days. <laughs> you after, the poop. Yes, no, yeah. <laughs> you have seventy-two hours, and then you're gonna get dragged to hell. And in the and when in Rome, too, it's the sister and the sister's husband and the sister's husband's nana who just happened to know, like, oh no, yeah, the fountain. If you take the coins, then." <laughs> You take the love and then you got to throw them back. But then also both movies come back with like an exposition ghost caveat. Like they come back and they're like, oh, actually there's this other thing you could do that I didn't mention originally, but that will also work and it will be easier for you. So like <laughs> Rom does the whole, well, you can give away, you can give away the curse. And the sister and Umberto are like, oh, you can just give the coins back to the people, it's fine. Like, why didn't you mention this shit up front?
0: I don't know if there's any
1: deeper symbolic meaning to
0: it, but it is an interesting parallel that both of the caveats are, oh, you can actually just give it to someone. <laughs> and then the um, twist of both of the movies is, uh-oh, you gave the wrong thing away. <laughs> yes,
1: exactly. And it's, yeah. is the thing it's, that it's- was happening in 2009 a lot. <laughs> Like aren't you double check? I guess the poker chip, they looked exactly the same, but are you not gonna check this envelope? We've said it already. If you're gonna give away a curse, you make sure i I double check everything, even when it's not cursed. So you believe yeah. me, if I had a cursed object, I'd be double checking that envelope every It'd be like finding my passport when I'm traveling like where' I put it is in my pocket? Is it here? You've got gotta make sure what I do yeah. think is interesting is. This act of like taking and giving something back. So in when in Rome, giving it back to the person breaks the spell. And in Drive Me to Hell, giving it to someone else breaks the spell. So it's kind of like similar, so, different.
0: But I think both of them have this idea of like taking what isn't yours, which I think is, is interesting when we talk about like the greater thing theme being for both of them kind of like women outstepping their bounds in some ways and then also being punished for taking what isn't theirs <laughs> through their ambition is kind of interesting. But I think it's also one thing that struck me about both of these is that I, washing dragged me to hell, uh, maybe because of the times we're in. But it really struck me that it's, I mean, you kind of establish it's a little surreal in the way it uses its horror and its comedy but there's a certain level of realism that comes with the main plot being this is Ganesh going to ask for a housing extension and this is in 2009 right after like the housing crisis and in the middle of the great recession and what in Rome seems to like completely ignore that but I think it's interesting that both of these movies made during this time kind of address the impossibility of the American dream almost
1: in response to that time period. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I do, it's definitely more visible in drag me to hell. Cause in when in Rome, you have two pretty well off characters. She's a museum curator at the Guggenheim and he's like an ex football player. So, and now I think he's a yeah. newscaster or a news writer or some sort of.
0: Also, her parents must just have bad money cause they pulled off that wedding in Italy right in front of, like, this famous Italian <laughs> landmark in, like, two days' notice. And, like, everyone had, like, set bridesmaids' dresses and uh, she's wearing um Louboutin heels.
1: <laughs> yeah. Money was no issue for any of those characters. So I feel like they really... It, you know, it's there in the undertones of, like, the American dream being unattainable, but at the same time, you don't really see it. Like, you see it in Drag Me to Hell with that very, like, real... God. character
0: i guess that's very similar to i feel like when you look at like genres and movies in the depression you have the rise of horror starting with like frankenstein and dracula in the early 30s and then the monster movies which are like gritty parallels for what's actually going on in the world and then you just got like musicals like we're just gonna make really big sets and we're gonna dance nothing's draw. <laughs> 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 and I feel like this kind of like captures us for like our time. <laughs> you know, yeah. this juxtaposition
1: <laughs> <laughs> We only we just picked the worst example. Like I'm sure there are movies, like rom coms from the you know 2009 2010 that were way better examples than this one.
0: <laughs> oh, in terms of ignoring reality, <laughs> we might have nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: true. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting is looking at the way the relationships function. So you have Beth and Nick and Chris and Clay. And I feel like, you know, the relationships are very, uh, the dynamics are very similar and different at the same time. I can't really.
0: Well, I think you had a good point earlier where you brought up that. Uh, both of these movies have women that rely on the men to save them a lot. And that kind of like need these men to problem solve for them.
1: I think what happens is in drag me to hell. Clay does become the person who is, you know, necessitating all the big things that are happening. So even though he doesn't really believe her, he's the one shelling out the money for even the psychic in the beginning, when she goes to get her fortune read, he's the one that pays.
0: <laughs> Although he doesn't want to pay until she goes. That's fine. I'll pay for it. And she reaches for his wallet. He's like, "Oh, okay, fine, but come down. Like, don't embarrass me. Like this whole <laughs> thing. Jesus. <laughs> like, all right, one
1: gen. <laughs> and but then he shells out the ten grand too, and he doesn't really believe her. And that's like a you know a hefty sum. But yeah, basically without his money, she wouldn't have been able to go to the medium. She wouldn't have been able to, you know, do any of these things that are basically carrying the plot forward. And similarly in when in Rome, you have Nick kind of necessitating, you know, her big show. She kind of gives up on the show. She's like, "Oh no, love. I'm in love now, so it doesn't matter anymore." And he gives the portrait or the photograph to get her career back on track i think the difference is that beth kind of pushes back on getting the help i mean she she obviously doesn't need the help financially as much it's just there to really cement nick is the one who's kind of giving her i don't know like he's being the man like stereotype
0: i think i think both of them help in non-financial ways as well though we're like even with Nick, like straight off the bat, he's doing the translations, he's helping her with the vase. I feel like there's like this weird thing in when in Rome, where like the first like 20 minutes are very exposition packed, and then the middle hours, like she stopped, and the last like <laughs> 10 minutes, something happens again. So, like, I don't know what happens in the middle, but he does have like some actions too. And I think Clay does as well, where like consistently, even non financially, he's um when she first gets assaulted in the car he's he sets up the whole car thing there are like so many lines that are just like okay well like i set up for you to have a rental car i have to go back to meet the guy who's towing your car this is your new like there's a lot of stuff like every scene i feel like he has something he's done for her that sets things up financial or otherwise he does also have a line where he explicitly addresses like on the day I met you that I realized, or, like, before I realized I loved you, I told myself I would do whatever it takes to keep this girl safe. So I do wonder, like, from that perspective, like, there obviously it's problematic that, like, these female characters, who in some ways have a ton of agency, are also, like, the plots moving forward by the men. Yeah. Even though they have so much agency, but then also the stereotype of, like, Women falling in love with men who can save them and men falling in love with women who they think they can help and then feeling powerful through that, which is obviously bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. That whole that is one of the tropes I hate the most is like men trying to save women in movies or being the what they think like finding the woman that needs the saving.
0: Yeah, I hate that trope in real life too.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty shitty. I think as someone who never needed saving, it it really, like, burns me because I'm, like, I feel like I suffer because of the fact that I don't need that from somebody. And I do think there's a favor towards the women that do kind of need that. You just can't win. <laughs> Remember I told a positive story earlier? <laughs> One time I was told my independence is intimidating. <laughs> Which is just like, okay, I don't know what to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't need you. Like, I don't know. I just, this idea of like, you know, men needing someone to like save and it being intimidating when a woman doesn't need that. But they want someone to be there. They just don't need it. And I think Beth was originally set up as a woman who doesn't need it Wants it, but doesn't need it. And then slowly this movie turned her into someone that just secretly needed it the whole time. Like they couldn't just have her be independent, be like, I want my job and I want love. She had to eventually just admit that she's just been being, you know, protective of her feelings because really she just needed it the whole time, which I don't like.
0: I feel like there's also this problem of like, frigid women are frigid and the only cure is if you can get them some good dick Mm
1: -hmm. and like I
0: feel like we see that with Kristen Bell's character but it's also there with like Angelica Houston where it's like she's such a bitch and like for no seemingly no reason just so mean and picking on Beth and criticizing her until she like gets that DeVito dick and just like yeah like whatever like drop your art off when you feel like it I'm the cool boss now <laughs> like I'm smiling and then, so I feel like it's this problem of like any woman who has an issue or is seemingly not outwardly happy should just be fixed if you get her some good dick <laughs> just, like,
1: get her that Danny Dick
0: veto. <laughs> <laughs> everyone wants a piece of that <laughs> sausage king for a reason am I right <laughs> It's the liver
1: worst. (laughs) The liver best. But yeah, it it is a frustrating situation. And then in, in Drag Me to Hell, they do position Chris as this, you know, Midwestern girl who's trying to, like, become a hard city girl. But at her core, she's still this, like, Midwestern farmer's daughter type girl that's constantly trying to outrun that, which again, is kind of her trying to change herself. But I think parents in general in these two movies, but also in a lot of the movies we've done and movies in general, I feel like they always use the parents to kind of speak to the type of person, like the trauma of the individual. So you have like Beth's parents who you have the free spirit dad who she's kind of trying to rebel against being like, and you have the mom who's been hurt then you can tell that the divorce really impact Beth's ability to love or whatever. Right. And they, I mean, I guess that's, like, life, too. That your parents fuck you up and then you deal with the things that
0: they fucked you up with. I couldn't even tell if they were trying to be like that, though. Because, but what's his sister's name, Joanne? I think
1: it was her, uh, Joan. Joan.
0: Joan is so similar to the dad that I couldn't tell if they were trying to do, like, an inherited trauma type thing from the divorce or if it was just a stereotype of like this one child and the mom are the same and this one child and the dad are the same <laughs> it's just genetics
1: <laughs> who can tell it's one in Rome I don't think they really thought it through
0: One in Rome anything goes just throw the script to the wall and see what sticks
1: like a pasta <laughs> I think this is the most anyone's ever thought about these
0: relationships
1: (laughs) I I guess one last
0: thing I wanted to say on your point of like the magic and the parallels between it and how it works is that I think it's interesting that in both these movies the magic is very like European (laughs) It's like this contrast between like Europe and America again, <laughs> which is I don't know. I just find that weird.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think they play off like the, you know, Europe's obviously an older country, an older uh, <laughs> continent. <laughs> what did you- sorry i've had some wine um how does geography work <laughs> Europe's an older continent so they have more history and like their magics go back further in america is like like we were talking about the american dream and like all these things and i feel like there is this contrast between the magic of the old world and like the logic and like you know upward movement of like the big city and in, in the U.S., in, like, New York specifically, or L.A., big big American cities where the American dream is more prominent.
0: And I think it's literally just, like, both of them showing that contrast, and one of them, they're like, well, our magician's an angel of love, and the other one's like, ours is a demon of hell, like, we'll just see what plays out if
1: we change that up. It's all the same. I mean, honestly, the loved one was almost as scary with, like, the people following her around. Like, that was, like, that could be damaging. Like, if they didn't have that one line from Danny DeVito that was, like, we love you, so we want what's best for you, and we'll help you. Like, that could turn real creepy real fast.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Boy.
0: Should we sum it up?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think we should. I don't know if I'd rather be dragged to literal hell or have to spend time with Dak Shepard and John Heater.
0: I'm interested in the hell. <laughs> I'd like to be dragged to hell and see what Greg Nicotero can do with those effects for me. Get some <laughs> mentoring, really learn how that works.
1: You become like an apprentice in hell. <laughs> like, I would love it. This sounds like a great time. It's a really hot career right now. So every episode, we're breaking down the lessons we can all learn from watching these two movies together.
0: So what did we learn today?
1: Coin collecting is for nerds.
0: Dweebs. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Compassion is not a flaw. She (laughs) just called
1: everyone dweebs. (laughs) So compassionate of you. (laughs) Don't take shit that doesn't belong to you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Be wary of that one person in your life who happens to know way too much about how curses work. So suspicious.
1: Never believe them. So creepy. Patriarchy is a curse.
0: Yeah! Curse the patriarchy! Oh, fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> that's definitely it. <laughs> so, which movie do you think teaches that lesson
1: better? um Because she gets dragged to literal hell, I think I have to say "drag me to hell." I'm also gonna say
0: "drag me to hell," also because I just I hate one in Rome, and I don't give the points for anything, which I guess answers the next question.
1: <laughs> I feel like both give the, like the lesson a good, um, really get it across. And I think when in Rome, really having four men aggressively chase you through New York for a length of time really gets that point across pretty well. But yeah, getting dragged to literal hell for me really. Um,
0: for for trying to use patriarchal patriarchal norms to your benefit and then getting dragged to hell for it. I think uh, it really, it really drags the point home. Yeah. Drags the point? I don't
1: know. Drags the point right to hell. It's like, she did what you asked, patriarchy. Can she live? Nope. Nope, she cannot. (laughs) Literally, no, she cannot. (laughs) So you already answered which movie did you enjoy more, and I'm just going to echo that, that... Although "Drag Me to Hell" wasn't my favorite horror movie, I liked it exponentially more than "When in Rome." I liked everything I've ever watched in the history of movies <laughs> more than "When in Rome." Amen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that, I think that covers it. I think so too. Until next time, I'm Amanda and I'm Tara, and remember,
0: all spare in love and gore. Bye. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> Arrivederci. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this? Your liver worst nightmare, pal. Oh
1: no. And I'm gonna go touch other people in the restaurant.